people were obviously uh, concerned about economic uncertainty. A lot of work to do to make sure that we're uh, governing for the entire country. Consult with Albertans on uh, fighting for a fair deal in Canada. There has been a long tradition of government that they can undersell the cost of war. Bedwards are still suffering. But we use all the artifacts that are found to give us some clues that can help us narrow down the list of who this could be. Remembrance Day will, will never be the same for me again. It's Sunday, November 10th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. Western alienation in Alberta and Saskatchewan has moved from a slow burn to rapidly igniting after the federal election results. There is even now a new separatist party in Alberta. Premier Jason Kenney says he doesn't support separation, but he is looking at ways to change his province's relationship with the rest of the country, either by altering equalization payments or pulling Alberta out of the Canada Pension Plan. But not all Conservative premiers support Premier Kenney's approach. Here's Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister. We have uh, resource development challenges that have lingered for a long time. We have a country that uh, has, like all countries, really a, an intertwining of, of social progress that comes from economic progress. You can't really have one without the other. And yet in Western Canada, we've got resource uh, export blockages that are really hurting the people of Saskatchewan and Alberta significantly. Manitoba, too. And uh, so my, my advice would be let's get on with it, let's build the country and let's uh, heal some of these divisions that have been created with uh, tactical approaches over the last while. Premier Jason Kenney joins us from Edmonton now. Welcome to the program, Premier. Good to be here. Sir, we just heard from Brian Pallister, the Premier of Manitoba. He's been critical of your approach after the election, saying it's a time that we need to look for unity, and he's concerned that Alberta could become what Quebec was to the country in the 1980s and the 1990s in terms of a potential separatist threat. What are you doing to ensure that that doesn't happen? Well, listen, there is deep frustration in this province. I think it's unprecedented. We can see that in the polling, uh, and uh, the wrong approach is to deride or dismiss uh, that uh, frustration. There are a lot of Albertans who uh, right now don't feel at home in their own country, that they're not being treated fairly. And so we need to take that frustration seriously because Alberta has been uh, a great engine of Canadian prosperity in recent decades. We have made a net contribution to the rest of Canada of over $600 billion through our federal taxes, about $23 billion a year, more than we send to Ottawa than we get back. And, and really, Albertans are happy to be generous, to share the benefit of our resources and hard work, as long as we can actually develop those resources, get a fair price for them. And what frustrates um, the overwhelming majority of Albertans is that we have governments that have, you know, the federal government that killed uh, uh, two pipelines, Northern Gateway and Energy East, that bungled Trans Mountain, surrendered to a veto on Keystone XL, brought in the No More Pipelines law, the tanker ban that is prejudicially attacking Alberta exports, a prime minister who said in the election that we need, uh, we need a federal government to stand up to Alberta energy companies. So, and we have a couple of provincial governments threatening to block pipelines too. So all we're asking for is fairness in the federation. Now, you are looking at developing your own provincial pension plan as one way to deal with that. What would be the point of pulling out of the Canada Pension Plan? What's in that for Albertans? 
Well, we will be consulting with Albertans on a whole range of ideas about uh, how we can get a fair deal in the Federation. I mentioned that we pay higher than we otherwise would, higher premiums than we would in our own uh, provincially managed pension plan because we have more younger workers. Now, Quebec has never been in uh, the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, provinces have the right to create their own pension funds. Um, and so we'll be consulting with Albertans to see if we should do so. It would allow us to reduce premiums in Alberta. Uh, that would uh, help to create jobs here. Uh, it would also allow us to manage those assets here, uh, helping to expand our own financial services sector. Are there other options on the table that the province is considering as well to make their point to Ottawa? Sure, there's a whole range of things that uh, we will be consulting on and that we are pushing for. I'll give you one example. There's a program called the Fiscal Stabilization Plan, which is supposed to be a kind of immigration, or, sorry, excuse me, an equalization rebate uh, for have provinces when they have a sudden dramatic decline in their revenues. Well, that happened to Alberta five years ago, but it was that the rebate was capped. We should have received billions of dollars from Ottawa to account for the basically four or five years of economic decline in this province, but instead it was capped and we've only received a couple of hundred million. So that's one simple way that Ottawa, Ottawa could demonstrate that it understands the deep adversity through which Albertans are going. We could take some of those funds, by the way, and invest them in, in job creation programs that also help the environment, like reclaiming abandoned wells uh, or investing in, in environmental technology. But we'll, we're, all, we're going to look at everything that Quebec does to exercise its own powers within the Federation and see if it makes sense to replicate those here in Alberta. So does Alberta want to become the new Quebec? Well, we're different provinces, but I tell you, I, I did say the night of our provincial election in April in French in my uh, victory speech that uh, we want to renew the traditional alliance between Quebec and Alberta. We believe, we, we Albertans, I think, are big Canadians. We believe in the original vision of the Federation as an economic union. And by the way, that means, uh, you know, we are going to disagree with Quebec on some things, but we certainly agree that provinces have the right to, for example, control their own resources. Uh, which is why I'm so pleased that Premier Legault is supporting us in our opposition to the federal No More Pipelines law, Bill C-69. Uh, he'll also, uh, the Quebec government will be supporting us um, in the appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada against the federal imposition of a carbon tax. One area where we disagree um, is on uh, the federal power to regulate interprovincial infrastructure like pipelines. That's an area which is a clearly in the Constitution a matter of exclusive federal jurisdiction. So we're not telling Ottawa to uh, get out of its own affairs, but rather to exercise its authority as envisions in, in the Constitution and let the provinces do the same. Let's come back to the original founding vision of the Federation as, as an economic union. Premier Kenny, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer was asked this week if he believes it's a sin to be gay. He wouldn't answer that question. Do you think that we have a right to expect our political leaders to answer those kinds of questions clearly in 2019? Well, I don't think Canadians want uh, religious tests to be applied to people in public life. Uh, we have, we're a pluralistic society, and there are folks uh, of many faiths and no faiths who run for public life. And I, I don't think we want to get it into a kind of doctrinal debate about what their faith traditions are. I think what leaders and legislators owe to the public is a focus on the common good, on a belief in, in human dignity for all, and equality of all before the law. Uh, th th those are values that I think we share across all and no faith traditions that we should stay focused on in our pluralistic democracy. But should you be able to clearly articulate what your personal beliefs are? Because he wouldn't even say that. 
I, again, I, I don't think we want to get into a situation where we start, in, you know, where does that end? We start asking folks of all different faiths uh, about uh, to start getting to a, into reflection of their faith traditions. Um, you know, I, I, we've done pretty well as a country building a, a pluralistic and diverse democracy, respecting people's different uh, beliefs and faith traditions without creating religious tests for people to serve in public life. And I think the common ground is a belief in human dignity uh, and a belief in equality before the law. Uh, that, I think, is a, those are pretty universal Canadian values. Premier Kenny, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. Welcome back. The toll of war on Canada's veterans and their families is high. From physical scars to invisible mental wounds, the men and women of our armed forces have sacrificed for their country, with some paying the ultimate price. Past governments and the current one have come under fire for making and breaking promises over and over again to veterans, despite the constant commitments to do better. Joining me now to discuss Canada's track record and what needs to be done to help veterans is retired Sergeant Alana Gilmore, who was a frontline medic in Afghanistan, and retired Master Corporal Jeff Depati, who was a JTF2 Special Forces sniper. Thank you both very much for joining us. Uh, we really are looking forward to hearing from you, especially as we head towards Remembrance Day tomorrow. Alana, you saw the worst of the worst injuries in Afghanistan. You saved lives. That takes a toll, too. And, and you've talked very publicly about suffering from PTSD. What are some of the challenges for a veteran like yourself as you've transitioned out and into the civilian world trying to deal with these physical and mental scars? Um, I feel for a lot of us, um, we don't quite know how to um, navigate the health system uh, once we leave the military. Uh, when you're a soldier and you're serving, you're well taken care of. You have to be because you could be deployed at any time. So you need to have a medical service that is ensuring that you are healthy, that you have your immunizations, that if you have any illness, that that's looked after, injury, the same thing. So when we get let go, all of a sudden we are now cast out and we're expected to figure out how to um, navigate a system that we've not been part of probably for the majority of our adult years. So I think for a lot of people it's almost overwhelming um, there's a huge delay, I find, at least it was for me when I got out in 2015, and I know there's been some improvements, but there was a lull, there was a, a big gap of time from release to when you, say, got, uh, you know, your doctor on the civilian side, um, or you got your prescriptions, or you got your disability claim through the Veterans Affairs of Canada, and the only way to get those pensioned uh, claims in is by submitting uh, umpteen numbers of paperwork plus supporting documents and then you have a waiting game and as you can tell like and, and what's happened before in the past huge delays in these people getting their uh, paperwork looked at and what that does is it actually um, means that the person is not getting looked after I agree that a serving member once they leave based on time served something uh, along that kind of metrics should be entitled to a medical package right out of service. Um, that transition time is extremely difficult. So like I say, I agree 100% with Alana. I also think that that transition time when a soldier is searching for their new identity, the military is great at creating soldiers. It's great at taking care of soldiers. 
But once that stops, and an individual has to now find their new identity, um, that layered on top of any medical issue, I, I think that's where vets will start to see most of their issues arise from. And Jeff, what was that experience like for you? Because you're pretty unique. We don't often hear from somebody who served in a <clears throat> Tier 1 Special Forces unit. Uh, I imagine it must be an even more jarring transition to go into civilian society. Yes, that's right. Extremely high-paced environment. And then as soon as you sign on the uh, dotted line that it's all done, it kind of just ends. And I don't want to throw the uh, cap under the bus totally. There are programs there. Veterans Affairs, the Legions, uh, CFMWS, uh, the Canadian Forces, uh, Morrell and Welfare Services to help with the transitions. It's just not nailed down yet. As soon as you're done signing your paperwork saying you're leaving and all, all your kit's packed and handed in, there should be a more robust program there to help soldiers move into the next portion that doesn't have such a government feel to it, not such a medical feel. Because some people are leaving the military and they don't want to be part of a government feeling organization. Some kind of third party organization would be great. Alana, why do you think that governments have struggled with this so much? Because it's not just a, a partisan issue. The conservatives took a lot of heat from veterans. The liberals uh, have disappointed a lot of veterans with the pension and other programs. Why is it that politicians can't seem to get this right? I don't know. I don't understand it. Um, you know, we've now created three tiers of three divisions of, of veterans. Um, you know, every time they come out with a new package that's different from the package that was there before, you know, some veterans now fall under the new veterans charter. Now we have veterans falling under the pension for life. And then we have the old pensioners that fell under a different system before. So there's three that I've mentioned all just since, uh, you know, since 2019, this year, and April 1st, it rolled out for the pension for life. I don't quite understand why we get nickeled and dined so hard. The amount of money they must put in to try and fight everything that we're looking for, just for quality of life, just to make sure, you know, whatever ailments we have based on our service are looked after for life. I feel like that's the least that can be done for our veterans and for their families because the families are just as much involved as the member themselves. The struggle is real. It's 24 and 7. There was a lot of promises made by different parties to veterans, including the now governing party, the liberals, that they were going to reach out to every veteran, ensure they weren't homeless, inject more money into the system. Do you believe that there will finally be change for veterans? Mm, I don't hold my breath. Um, I don't want to be cynical, but I don't hold my breath. The thing is, I agree with Atlanta, they could streamline all this, save money and still have solutions to the problems, getting that funding to the, uh, to the vets and, as Atlanta said, to their families. Their families are going to be that first line of defense for any of the long-term mental illness, any of the well-being in the uh, longitudinal um, area. Jeff, I, I want to ask you about a tough topic, but I think you're an important person to speak about this, uh, especially given what you did in the forces and, and the additional sort of cultural barriers around a Tier 1 unit and talking about mental health and talking about the issue of suicides among serving members and our veterans. It is still an epidemic, both in those in uniform and those after they retire. Why do you think it is that we are struggling to help veterans who are facing suicidal feelings and, and to be able to reduce these numbers more significantly? There's probably lots of stigma attached to it, a lot of uh, negative press, I would imagine. It's just, 
I don't think it's all that difficult. I think the governments are overcomplicating it. I think if they start bringing, like referring back to the CAF, does an excellent job of taking care of their soldiers. If there was just something to bridge that gap between Veterans Affairs, the CAF, governments could save some money. They could reach into something that's taboo. I personally also agree with Oana saying that you know PTSD gets a bad rap. We can empower things like post-traumatic growth, which is the big brother to PTSD, and remove those stigmas so that people's egos don't get in the way. And once we start talking about it, that's when those floodgates open up, showing people how to talk about it. Um, yeah. Uh, and we don't just want to focus on the negative because there are lots of veterans like both you and uh, Jeff who have done incredibly well, Alana, despite the challenges. What are some of the things that have helped you that you would recommend to fellow veterans who are out there that are looking for a lifeline? Um, so I released in 2015. I'm going to be very honest when I say I had a very difficult transition. I had amazing difficulty figuring out how to re-identify myself, but in the civilian world. Um, I had depression. The PTSD was elevated. For me, um, as soon as I got back into something military, I actually found myself, I found a purpose again, that even though I wasn't wearing the uniform, that I was still good for service. I was still good to serve veterans. Maybe not the servicemen and women, but I could still advocate. I spent 10 years advocating for um, significantly injured, catastrophic wounds and stuff from my ex-spouse. So now I'm navigating a new system from a veteran's angle, and it's inclusive. It's everybody, female, male, it doesn't matter. But the point is, it's, the fact is, is that we served, you know, now we have people who truly need us, that have done, put themselves at risk. They need our help. Why can't we just do that? And that is absolutely a fair question and one we will continue to ask. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But thank you both, Alana and Jeff, for your thank service you, to our country. And thank you for coming on to talk about this issue with us. Up next, Laying Them to Rest with Dignity, a military program that identifies the remains of Canadian servicemen lost to the tides of time. Welcome back. Canada has lost hundreds of thousands of men and women in service to their country. Thousands of Canada's war dead are yet to be found and identified. However, a special military program looks to do just that to find those who've been lost, to name them, and to lay them to rest with honor. Here's a look at that program. In early January 2017, a father and son with a metal detector found the partial skeletal remains of an Allied soldier in a farmer's field south of Caen in France. Nothing clearly indicated the nationality of the remains, but a helmet, a canteen, and a pipe provided clues that it might be a Canadian soldier. There was also a ring with the initials J.A.C. With those clues, the Department of National Defense's Casualty Identification Program kicks into high gear. We use all the artifacts that are found to give us some clues as to any personal or unit identifiers that can help us narrow down the list of who this could be. First, the Casualty Identification Program has to find out if the remains actually belonged to a Canadian service member. Next, a member of the team flies overseas for anthropological analysis. 
Based on the age and the height range that I'm able to derive from the remains, we then look at the list of potential candidates that the historian has put together, and we can eliminate everybody who's too young, too old, too short, too tall. Genealogical research is the next step, with the ultimate goal of finding a DNA donor, a daunting task. In some cases, remains can be identified with just historical analysis and anthropological research. But in the case of JAC, that was not enough. Fire. So the team had to turn to dental science to help identify the remains. We were able to reduce the number of possible uh, dental profiles that would, would match to actually four files. But for one of the files, actually, we had a strong correlation between the dental remain that the, they found. That file belonged to a sergeant, John Albert Collis, a soldier who already had a marked grave. Now that the list had been narrowed down, it was time for DNA analysis, matching the teeth found in the farmer's field with Collis's descendants. Waiting for those answers, it was like waiting on Christmas morning. Like you just can't wait to hear what the answer is. It was a match. JAC was in fact Sergeant John Albert Collis from the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. Finally, it was time to reach out to the family. Knowing that I am related to someone who was brave enough to go and fight for our country and it really has kind of made me feel like our family has learned so much about where we've come from. Now after 75 years, Sergeant Collis has finally been laid to rest with his family and comrades present. What started with a ring, helmet, pipe and unidentified remains turned into an opportunity for a family to be reunited with someone who they had never had the chance to meet. In 12 years, the casualty identification program has positively identified 31 Canadian soldiers and 19 foreign soldiers. But there are still over 27,000 Canadian war dead with unknown graves from the First World War, the Second World War, and the Korean War. I don't think we'll ever uh, be able to put a name to a grave for the 26 plus thousands that are still listed as unknown, but we'll sure uh, continue to do what we can until, at least until I'm finished my, my service. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Walk. Thank you for joining us, and a special thank you today and every day that goes to those men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces, both past and present, for their service and sacrifice for this country. We leave you now with the words from this year's Silver Cross mother, Mrs. Wren Sampson Daw. I think it is important that Canadians remember what a war costs, but I don't want them to have pity on soldiers. I think they deserve a whole lot more than that. They deserve respect and recognition and uh, maybe help, help, you know, help for the people who returned, the ones who came back with uh, mental and physical ailments, severe ones, uh, and they need that constant support. It's not something that you think about on the 11th and then that's over. So it should be more permanent.